As the Commonwealth of Virginia moves forward with drawing new federal and state legislative districts, it is incumbent that minority voters both understand redistricting and how they as individual voters can become involved in the process. It's an important element in ensuring that minority participation is in our democratic process. For too long in Virginia, minority voters have faced illegal, political, and racially based redistricting. With the passage of Constitutional Amendment 1, minority voters can now directly participate in this process. Minority voters must participate in the redistricting process. All eligible voters should be allowed to vote. All votes must be counted. And minority votes must not be diluted or taken for granted. To learn more about the process and other upcoming events, go to OneVirginia.org. Paid for by Diverse Engagement, LLC. Hi, this is Kevin McCullough. Thanks for listening to the Christian Outlook podcast, where we cover today's issues from a perspective that honors your Christian faith. Our podcast is brought to you through a partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I trust you'll enjoy. I don't know if this is still a thing, but I remember years ago being a kid in like the old schoolyard taunt. You wanted to get under the skin of one of your buddies, you know, and he was talking to a girl. You'd go, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes Eddie in a baby carriage, right? Uh, there's a, a progression. There's a, you know, sort of a, a flow to the, to the, what, the complexities of life and, you know, boil it down into a schoolyard chant. Well, more people are living together than ever before, and it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, it's secular. It means evangelicals or Christians or whomever, people who know and love the Lord, they are cohabitating now. David Ayers is with us. David's professor of sociology at Grove City College, author of the upcoming book, Beyond the Revolution, Sex and the Single Evangelical. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, happy to have you, David. And boy, things have changed a lot. I'm thinking in particular from a church perspective, we can talk about from a cultural perspective too, but you know, I've been involved in the same church for a long time. And just to see the numbers of people who come into the church who want to be married in the church, and they've been living together for three weeks, three months, three years and whatever. And there's no, there's no awareness that that would, that that would, you know, violate a church teaching. There's really no interest in it. And, And I think, wow, you know, it seems like each year there are more and more people who think that way. They are shocked if you actually express an objection to it and think there's something wrong with it. And unfortunately, what a lot of our pastors are facing is that oftentimes their friends, their parents, and fellow members of their congregation are shocked. Really? Okay. They, so it, they the expect piece, you increasingly to accept this. That we, that because, of course, it's mainstream. So if the mainstream secular culture should uh, accept this, then what's wrong with Christian culture? So, uh, David, you know, you talk in the piece that you wrote for Christianity Today, the cohab- cohabitation dilemma comes from America's pastors, that you say that that's exactly what you did. You went and you talked in 2019 to a bunch of your contemporaries about cohabitation and how it's affected them, how they inter- intersect. Uh, were you surprised by the results that people were, you know, getting pushback that they thought, well, you know, uh, you're a pastor, you should just be cool with this like everybody else is? No, uh, but part of the reason I wasn't surprised by the results is because I'd been speaking in churches and I also addressed a large uh, group of pastors uh, earlier. And I looked at the show of hands and then I had people coming up to me and telling me, 
anguished stories about their experiences with this, including um, I don't do weddings anymore because I got tired of dealing with the pushback and I just didn't want to be dishonest to the scriptures. But, you know, people would get really angry with me if I took a stand on this. And um, a lot of other pastors, too, were already in the process of really curtailing weddings in their churches because of their concern about state interference and same-sex marriage and licensing and all this kind of thing anyway. So it's just been one more thing that's really made it difficult, I think, for them to do their jobs uh, while trying to uphold the clear teaching of the Word of God. Right. So now this is a this is a difficulty that every Christian believer is having, because if you uh, subscribe to a biblical ethic, there is a sexual ethic in it. And um, for people who are outside the church, they can't understand that. And that's, that's fine because they don't, you know, that, 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 you know, as Paul says, we don't have to worry about judging people who are outside the church. Um, But for people who are inside the church, um, I think that's where my greatest sadness is the people who have grown up in the church, who, you know, recognize the authority of the Bible or have, you know, been there week after week. Um, There's even in people who are churched as far as background goes, there's still like a disassociation when it comes to a sex ethic. Well, part of the problem is, you know, looking at the Bible and, and using our culture as a kind of a barometer in terms of what we kind of would want to view as trivial sins, right? Well, it's mm-hmm. it's not a big sin. It's kind of like a white lie, right? It's not that big of a deal. And then I think part of it is, and, and I, I've actually got this from at least one of the pastors I interviewed, and I get this from other people. Hey, look, you know, we're dealing with transgenderism. We're dealing with same-sex marriage. Uh, we're, we're dealing with, with trying to figure out what the ramifications of the Equality Act are going to be on our churches. You know, why are you worried about this stuff? Why are you worried about cohabitation? Why are you worried about sex outside of wedlock? You know, that, that's just not a big deal. And that, that's oftentimes thought, but, you know, at least I'm not doing something really bad, you know. But the problem is, of course, is that the, the Word of God, while certainly giving us a sense of the seriousness of different sins, they're not all just the same. Nevertheless, um, we serve a holy God, and, and um, teachings about sexual purity are very central. Uh, and in fact, were one of the ways that in the early Roman period, the Romans distinguished the Christians and the Jews from everybody else because their standards were so high in this area. So to turn our back on that now <clears throat> would be terrible. On top of that, of course, it looks like hypocrisy for for people who are struggling with some of these other issues, because to them, it means, well, you guys don't take heterosexual sin seriously. You know, you're not worried about Mm -hmm. about fornication. What you're worried about is, you know, things that give you the ooh factor. Right. And and so, in fact, you know, we, we think, well, this isn't a big deal. Look at these other things are the real problems. But the people who are struggling with those real problems, many of whom are in the faith with us, struggling alongside us, are wondering why we turned a blind eye to an elder's son living with his girlfriend out of wedlock, but we're going to come down on him for having a boyfriend and maybe in some ways living with more integrity uh, than the heterosexual couple. And I I feel for that. I think that that's a very valid concern. Now, of course, uh, I'm sorry, we're speaking with David Ayers from Grove City College about a piece um, that's in this month's edition of Christianity Today that David wrote, The Cohabitation Dilemma Comes from American Pastors. Now, David, of course, you know this, and I think probably most people who live together or uh, uh, choose to live together know this. Uh, late last month, this is from um, 
the Atlantic. The Journal of Marriage and Family published a new study with a somewhat foreboding finding. Couples who lived together before marriage had a lower divorce rate in their first year of marriage, but had a higher divorce rate after five and 10 years. I mean, people have talked about this for a long time, right? They have. I mean, just straight up, people that live together first are more likely to get divorced. The big argument as to whether or not that's just a selection effect, you know, people that live together are the type of people that would be more likely to get divorced anyway. Um, One of the reasons why their divorce rate is a little lower up front is because there's something called the early marriage letdown. And they've already gone through that because let's say they moved in three years ago, they've already kind of gone through that process. But then what happens is as their marriage enters its more mature phase, while the while the couple that really prepared properly for marriage is growing and working through that um, and getting through a lot of those first, you know, those trials that many people experience in their early marriage, they're, they're beginning to fall apart because rather than preparing for marriage the way that they should have, they thought that cohabitation was going to basically do that for them. And that is one of the biggest myths out there uh, about cohabitation. And in my college teaching, mo- most of my students actually still believe that. They're shocked, and a lot of them will refuse to believe, even when I put it right in front of them, that cohabitation does not work as a practice marriage, that, in fact, the, the dissolution rate of cohabitation is extraordinarily high. And and so let's let's talk about why it's hard for people to realize that ahead of time. And I'm not, so if we're, if we're taking the biblical ethic out of it, we're just talking, you know, from, from pra- practical reasoning. Um, what do you think it is that causes people to say, Oh, I'm sure that's not the case, even when they're confronted with data to the contrary. Well, uh, you know, I think first of all, is that I've never, and, and I'd be willing to apply this to myself as a sinner. Uh, never underestimate the ability of people to look reality in the face and deny it if it goes against their deeply held. Beliefs. Okay, that's a good point. Yeah, right. But the other, but the other thing is, is that they're not really hearing it from many people. Um, most college classes on marriage and family today aren't going to deal with it at all. They're going to side the issue. They're not really hearing it in high school. And if you watch television, you know, really for at least the last 10 or 15 years, the first thing people do when they get, quote, serious is they live together. And, and it's, it's presented as the most natural, normal sure. thing in the world. And so, you know, it's just like they're, it's like the water they're swimming in. And so in some ways, when I'm standing up in a classroom and I'm dealing with sophomores and juniors, they're oftentimes hearing it for the first time. It's, it's one or two class periods out of a whole semester. And this is the first time they've ever heard it in their lives. Okay. So then you look at like, you know, mainstream, right? I mean, uh, I've not seen it, but I've certainly read about it. Uh, The Bachelor. I mean, you know, that TV show where couples are getting together. I mean, they're having sex, like, you know, on the first date or so. So when you think about uh, living together, that seems very quaint by comparison. So I I wonder, then, David, are you saying even at Christian universities, students coming in, is it Bible illiteracy that drives a lot of this or just total ignorance? Well, I, one is I think that <clears throat> the degree of Bible illiteracy today among people who've been raised in Christian churches and home is shocking. Um, how many of them have never actually even read the whole Bible and really thought it through? Um, that that's, that's a huge issue of itself. But then we also have the problem 
that we're now bringing assumptions, very relativistic, very identity-centered. Uh, you know, I get to construct my own reality. You know, um, reality has to conform to my expectations and desires of it. And it's in the air that we breathe. You know, transgenderism is, is just one kind of symptom of, of something that's been with us for a long time, that we kind of think that reality bends to our desires, to our mm-hmm. dictates. Yeah. And so they look at Scripture that way. And so what many of the pastors I've talked to and what I've confronted myself will say is that they'll say, yes, the Bible says that's wrong, but that's why it's not wrong in my case. And Mark Regnerus um, and others have documented interviews with evangelical and Catholic teenagers where they, they talk about sex, for example, that way, yeah, the Bible teaches, but this is why it's okay for me. And it's there's so they we have these mechanisms to neutralize reality and to neutralize biblical teaching that are very potent. And I don't think most pastors and youth workers have yet really figured out how to cope with those things. Yeah. I really like that term. We have the ability to neutralize reality. I mean, that's, that's the case for every single one of us, you know, regardless of what sin we're talking about. I mean, the last thing I want to do is, is, you know, point out someone else's issue and I got to log up my own eye. Yeah. Well, David, thanks. I mean, uh, there's a lot there. And of course, we've just scratched the surface. Yeah, but, thank uh, you. Your article in this edition, this month's edition of Christianity Today does a deep dive. I should also say that it uh, features some local pastors here in the city of Pittsburgh mm-hmm. as well. So kudos to you for the scholarship and uh, for the call that we need to hear, especially for, uh, you know, anyone who's considering cohabitation. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity and I hope, you know, I hope it does some good. Yeah. Yeah, Thanks, David. We do, too. This month's edition, the Cohabitation Dilemma, comes from America's pastors, David Ayers from Grove City College. Thanks for listening to Christian Outlook. Our program is coming to you today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you enjoy our podcast, take a moment and tell a friend to subscribe today.